1: And today we are dishing about intermittent fasting, but first a little catch up. Gina, what's going on?
0: Yeah. So I think we're both quarantining currently, right? <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I think every single family is probably going through this at least with the new variant, at least once, right? This year, at least uh, but all of like pretty much all of Cameron's class has COVID. I mean, one person got, before if one person had it, it was like, eh, maybe he'll get it. Maybe he won't. But this time it was I mean, it just went through that classroom like wildfire um, because it's just so contagious. But did, we've been was he OK before, the
1: whole time? Like or did he yeah. get sick?
0: No, not at all. He's perfectly fine. We're all fine. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was so cute. We went we went out sledding the other day. <laughs> now he did test positive for COVID. Okay. So he did test positive, which I only tested him because half his class had tested positive. And I'm like, well, I'm just kind of curious. And I had to get that thing up there, up his nose. So because he didn't have any symptoms and they say that when you don't have symptoms, it's less it's less accurate. So I really had to put that swab up his nose pretty, pretty good and really had to, you know, push hard. And anyway, so he is positive. And we went sledding the other day and one of his friends from school was there and they went to give each other a hug. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Because I'm thinking to myself, Cameron has COVID. I don't want him to get close. But I said, wait, does he have COVID? And they're like, yeah. Like, okay, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah. COVID playdates. It's like a thing now. Oh my gosh. So it was, it was really cute. They were like another person. I haven't talked to another child in so long other than, you know, my sister, Paige, his sister. Uh Uh, So yeah, it was, it was cute. But yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. Uh, let's see. Oh, we went to see the Broadway show Cats last Saturday. Nick was, did a little early birthday gift for me where we went to see, this was before all this stuff went down. Okay. So obviously we, if this, this was, we did this in a safe way. This was before the whole thing with with Cameron's classroom happened. We went to see Cats and it was just me and Paige and she didn't necessarily want to go, but I knew she loved the music so much. She doesn't love plays which is fine. I, in first grade, I didn't really love plays either, especially not Broadway plays that are normally like two and a half hours long. And she did not want to go. We kind of had to force her to go, but she did end up, I knew she would, just absolutely loving it because the music in those in that show is just so good. Andrew Lloyd Webber is the um, person who wrote all the music. And I don't know, it just, all of the, the colors, the sounds, the lights, all the special effects, the costumes. It was just amazing. And the was two it? and a half, it was just downtown Columbus. Okay. Um, but the two and a half hours flew by. And then Nick and I went and stayed in a hotel. This is kind of my early birthday gift. And uh, it was, we wanted to get a hotel with a hot tub because we're obsessed with hot tubs. <laughs> and of course, every time we went down there to use it, it was packed. So we ended up not being able to go into the into the hot tub at night, but we woke up at the crack of dawn, six o'clock the next morning, and got in and had it all to ourselves. That's funny. <laughs> it was totally worth it. Hmm. Nick wakes up at five. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this really worth it to go to the hot tub? But he'd been awake since already since five. So I felt kind of guilty. So I got out and and it was worth it. So what's new with you guys? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, just just COVID. We we just can't like knock it out. Mark was the day after Christmas, so that was twelve twenty six. I was diagnosed on one five. Shay on one eighteen, and I'm just like, okay, Piper, could could you just like lick each other and can we get this over with? Because <laughs> how Piper has not gotten COVID. My, you know, it just anyway the inconvenience of COVID. I mean, firstly, everybody's fine. That's the beauty of it. I did come yeah. home though, and I looked at Shay, and her little cheeks were so bright red. And I touched her and she was on fire. I was like, okay, you you freaking have COVID. Like there's zero yeah. chance that you don't. But I went out and got a test anyway. And it was, it was like reading a pregnancy test. It was like you could see like whatever you wanted to see. Is there a line? Is there not a line? Like I just, I wish it was a smiley face or sad face or I mean, a uh-huh. plus, a minus. It was not completely clear. The next day, however, it was like, yep, that's a positive. And then we yeah. took her for an actual test, not just a home test. Uh, so anyway. We're going to continue to test Piper, but so far Piper is perfectly healthy, which kind of leads me to believe perhaps she's already had COVID. I don't even know. Yeah, She has been tested extensively. So I find that a little hard to believe, but anyway, um, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, dealing with that. And it's, I told Mark, it it makes it hard to pay for all these extracurricular activities that it's like my kids barely go to anymore. I know. Um, it's, it just seems like I'm hemorrhaging money for, for nothing. (laughs)
0: I know nothing. Yep. We've had to skip quite a few things. Yeah. It's hard, Um, but we have our
1: health, so that's good. Everybody's fine. She had a fever for about 36 hours. I would say it got up there. That was over 102. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And she just sweat through the night when I just felt bad for her, but she's, Aww. she's doing a lot better. And just a, a report back on my goals. I, for we did our goals episode, but I've got my bullet journal out. I've got my goals written down. You know, that's always like, can I remember my goals? That's like step one. Right. And I would just mm-hmm. like to report that my, my, my year is starting off strong.
0: So I'm happy with that. Nice. Good. That's awesome. Yeah. Almost at the end of January. Crazy. Yeah. I, going back to Piper not having it. Yeah. I I don't know how we're, both times we've lived with someone with COVID and not, and didn't get it. And I have no idea how we, maybe it was the, the vaccine, who knows, but uh it does seem to be you know catching on like wildfire just it's just rampant this new this new variant so how and even Paige, i know last time when she had covid she had the delta variant so how she isn't getting this again she was just vaccinated too but yeah it's so interesting how that works all right uh all right so before we begin just a quick favor to ask since you like this podcast please write us a review Reviews on iTunes are everything to us, and they really help us reach more people. So of course, we'd appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And so today on intermittent fasting, and I'm going to have to look up what episode, but this is not the first time that we've broached this topic. Uh, However, we wanted to do it slightly different today and not necessarily talking about what intermittent fasting is uh, or the types of intermittent fasting that are out there, but really more of a deep dive on any merits or pitfalls of intuitive eating from a diet culture and science standpoint, I guess you could say, kind of coming at it from both ends. Um, But the position of intermittent fasting is is really that excess calories may certainly be what they call the proximate cause of weight gain, but not its ultimate source. So this is the position of intermittent fasting. So proximate meaning what is immediately responsible, uh, so calories, Whereas the ultimate source is what started the chain of events. So in other words, it's intermittent fasting points the ti- to the timing of what's consumed as being more important in terms of health and weight than what's actually consumed in terms of like, what are you eating? Any immediate thoughts on that?
0: Well, yeah, I guess I just, I I haven't seen the research on this. I, I don't know. I can't, I don't have much to say because I haven't actually seen... The data. And of course, this goes completely against intuitive eating because with intuitive eating, your body is telling you when to eat and you listen to your body. Yeah. So it's not sustainable in my in my mind to think so much about what time am I gonna eat? You know, what time should I eat this? What time can't I eat this? It's just too much thinking. We're
1: gonna unpack that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. In the nineties, and Gina, this is probably this is certainly in the nineties is when my um probably first exposure, if you will, to uh dieting first occurred, which is kind of crazy to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I, Atkins was a thing and I think that's crazy to me, but okay. So Atkins turned into, well, I guess Atkins is really like keto. Well, yes, it's very similar. Keto is just
0: more focused on fat fat versus protein. Okay.
1: Yeah. So Atkins, and then it was like a quick shift, I would say into low fat, and a higher carbohydrate diet. So the '90s, and I would say, is really kind of earmarked with that low fat. So we t- we've talked about like Olean and the Wow chips and snack wells, and you know, just this whole low fat push. Um, and interestingly, what we saw during that time was weight status just continued to kind of go up and up, like fat in the diet went down, weight went up. And and that was just a very interesting takeaway from the low fat craze, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I'm inserting, I'm going completely off script already. We haven't gotten to a, our discussion yet, but do you think that that experience of that era of diet culture has impacted the, um, the, the, Trend towards whole fat products. So I think of things like Mark will always say, You always used to eat fat free salad dressing or light, and now you get the real thing. Or even the same thing with like yogurt or, you know, fill in the blank. Do you think that some of that is a result of what we saw in the 90s and early 2000s?
0: So, sort of like diet backlash. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Totally. Absolutely. Yes. And I do think the research is now supporting in so many ways. Not just weight necessarily, but that full fat products are actually better for our health. We still have to watch our fat intake, obviously. We still do have to watch it. That is a fact. Especially if you're someone like me and you, Nicole, who have tend to lean on the higher side of LDL, right? Uh-huh. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, I know when I was doing all low fat, I mean, when I, when I had an eating disorder, my thing was fat. Like I tried so hard to avoid fat and I just was never satisfied. It's just not satisfying. And if you're truly in tune with your body and you get the full, full, full fat products, you'll find that they're not only more satisfying, but you'll eat the amount that is healthy and balanced for for your body. Enough for you to satiate you. You don't need as many calories to actually feel satisfied. So yes, I do, a long way to answer your question. Yeah, I do think it has a lot to do with that. Totally agree.
1: And when you just look at foods in general, not all foods are high sources of fat, right? Grains, yeah. fruits, vegetables. Okay, most. Anyway, avocados, mm-hmm. coconut. Okay, yes, there are, mm-hmm. there are exceptions, but generally speaking, those foods, beans, legumes, they are pretty much fat free. I mean, yeah. or very low in fat. So if you look at the diet as a whole, um, you know, we learned, at least when I was in school, that as a percentage of the calories in the, in the American diet, protein is in excess versus fat. Mm-hmm. Does that ring any bells for you? You mean in the American diet? Yeah, we eat large portions of
0: protein. Yeah, because we're so obsessed with protein now. Yeah, before, well, I don't know what it was before, but before it was, you know, we're obsessed with reducing our fat. Now it's, we're obsessed with protein, protein, protein. And there's such thing as too much protein. I try to tell these people, I'll never forget it. We're Learning this in graduate school that any more than 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein actually has a negative effect on your muscle mass. And people I talk to at school, especially in a college setting, are getting so much more than that. 2.2 per kilo? Yeah, grams yeah. per kilo. I mean, that's yep. a lot. It is a lot. It's a lot. And that's, that's expensive, okay? And that is that takes some serious effort to get that much protein. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, okay. So to happen to
1: one more point on low fat. Sure. In terms of where that takes food, processed mm-hmm. foods in particular, is fat tastes good. You said that. It's, it's mm-hmm. satiating low-fat products taste like garbage, but mm-hmm. in order to try and get them to not taste like garbage, we just replace the fat with salt and sugar. Mm-hmm. And that that's a good segue into kind of the first question, which is just to point out that in the 1980s, is really where we saw the percentage of bmi over 30 and i'm only using that as a reference point mm-hmm. based on research we we saw bmi percent those that percentage that group really take off during the time of like 1976 to 1996 and we saw average fat intake decrease from 45% of daily energy intake to 35% we saw butter consumption go down animal protein decreased egg consumption went down and grain and sugar intake was on the rise and we've lived through these kind of diet culture crazes. Would you say that intermittent fasting is as widespread as the low-fat movement of that late 70s, 80s, 90s?
0: Oh, my gosh. No, I I think definitely not. I don't hear about it as much. People don't ask me about it as much. I also feel, you know, with the fat-free craze, doctors were backing that, you know? And there was good science behind not necessarily fat free for weight loss per se, but, or low fat, I should say. Low fat diet is necessarily going to be better for our health, lower fat, right? There's nothing really that I have heard. I've never heard a doctor recommend intermittent fasting. Never, never once in my life. Now I am not in the clinical setting. So I guess you could say that, but I definitely, I don't think that it's taken off as, as much as the fat free craze. And plus the the food companies aren't aren't backing it like would you ever find a food that says you know good for intermittent fasting no but you see so many foods that say you know low-fat fat-free and especially you saw that more snack wells, a great example those came out right at the height of that fat-free low-fat diet craze all these companies came out with products to really push that agenda there's no product that's going to push the agenda of intermittent fasting you just you can't do that
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not a health claim. It's a health approach, arguably. I, right. I, I would say being in a clinical setting, um, th- this eating pattern is most certainly recognized by providers. Okay. For sure. Hear it for, all the time.
0: For, but you're also in the diabetes setting and there might be some, right? So well, and I be... would
1: argue that that's probably one of the populations that should heed caution with this type of eating pattern. Right. Which makes it concerning, all the more concerning. And I'm not saying that as a blanket statement. I'm saying that as um, the medications alone would put people at risk, not all medications, but many at risk of Mm -hmm. a low blood sugar, which is a diabetic emergency, right? I mean, that's not, Mm -hmm. it's more dangerous to have a low blood sugar than a high. Anyway, Mm -hmm. yeah, I would, I would. I agree with you. And it's interesting to marry intermittent fasting with kind of the mantras that we've heard, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day and eat like a king at breakfast, a, a prince at lunch and a pauper at dinner or whatever the saying is. <laughs> um, so when I bring that together with just my in-depth knowledge of really, and, and I'm here I'm going to go science-y, but the the effects of hepatic, so glucose output from the liver in a fasting state. Uh we see that on continuous glucose monitors. Like I look at that every day. Yes. In a diabetic population, but I would lump into their insulin resistance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, I metabolic syndrome. When you take in those groups of people, we're now talking about at least two thirds of the adult population.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, <laughs> that's clearly a lot of people. Uh, yeah. I don't know. So that's that's my take there. But I agree. I don't think it's quite as as mainstream, but it is is recognized pretty wide and far. And I see people marry it with other diet approaches, keto, all that type of stuff.
0: I can't even imagine. That sounds like a horrible life to me. I I would, (laughs) no, no, thank you. (laughs) Horrible. (laughs)
1: Agreed. Uh. Agreed. Uh, So a, a lot of this uh, just curiosity comes from the book that I'm currently reading. It was recommended by a patient and actually several dietitians over the years, but it's um, the work of de- Dr. Jason Fung. Several chapters in, I'm yet to find anything in the book that I disagree with. Uh, mm-hmm. So the bo- book I'm reading is The Obesity Code. And he points out, uh, there's a quote, genetics can explain much of the inter-individual risk of obesity but not why an entire population can become obese, mm-hmm. and he points out that genes cannot change as quickly as we've seen mm-hmm. the the BMI rise, okay, just to I'm just using you know commonly accepted terms here we that's not even a generation. well, okay, maybe one, but still, the rate that we're seeing that change, it's not like evolutionary evolutionarily evolutionary. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's (laughs) not possible for Mm -hmm. us to evolve that quickly into these larger people. So kind of setting aside haze for a moment, we Mm -hmm. can't argue that as a nation we're we're not in bigger bodies than in decades of the past. So Eugenia, what would you say are the biggest lifestyle contributors to Mm the shift to larger bodies?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, uh, going back to my intuitive eating knowledge, not listening to our bodies is a big part of that. We just eat to eat. We eat, 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 eat. <laughs> when there's food, we eat it. Uh, there's and, and honestly, there's food literally everywhere. I, I remember when I was, I don't even know where, when it was that I it dawned on me that, oh my gosh, there's food at Lowe's. I mean, I can go <laughs> to get, you know, I don't know what I'm going to buy at Lowe's, a new lawnmower or some mulch or whatever. And there's food. I could get food. I could probably make a whole lunch out of it, right? Uh, We've completely lost touch with our internal hunger cues. And we are so focused on external things like the scale, uh, the time on the clock, uh, the calories written on the box, or even just it's 12 p.m., time for lunch, 6 p.m., time for dinner. We've lost sight of the idea that our bodies are our best regulators. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I would say... Not only are we losing touch with our bodies, but food is just so easy to get these days. We can see a commercial on TV, pick up the phone, order that food, and have it in our lap in 15 minutes, doing nothing but maybe walking up to the door, grabbing the food and going, and sitting back down on the couch. Uh, I mean, heck, where I work, students can get, you know, robot delivery to their dorm. It's just, ah, insane. Speaking of that, I would say also inactivity. But I would say not just lack of exercise, but just the daily inactivity. You could exercise every day for three hours, but then just sit on your butt the rest of the day, which a lot of us do. And I'm certainly one of those people on certain days. That's why I bought a stand-up desk. I'm trying to, to help out wait some, you know, a little bit there. But I think also what we tend to do is we think, oh, I worked out for two hours. I can eat whatever I want. And that, again, goes back to not listening to our bodies. Because after a two-hour workout, certainly you might be a little bit more hungry. But if you get into this mindset that because I worked out, I deserve X, Y, Z, which we often do, we're not listening to our bodies. And truly, actually, after a workout, your your appetite tends to decrease, at least for a couple hours afterwards. But we just don't listen to our bodies. And we just assume because we did this, we need to get this. And, and we end up overconsuming. Uh, so, yeah. That's those are some of the things that I think are contributing to that. What about you? Yeah. Yes and uh
1: I I have to point a finger to sweetened beverages uh, mm-hmm. or inactivity as as kind of the number one driver. I listen to what people eat a lot in my job mm-hmm. and it it continues to shock me at how like what is Haitian Hawaiian Haitian Hawaiian Haitian I mean Something, yeah, it's like fruit punch, like found at the dollar store. I didn't even know what that was. And I Googled it. It is literally, it is the highest thing in sugar I've ever seen, Haitian, Hawaii. More than Mountain Dew? Oh, yeah. I think Crush is even higher than Mountain Dew too.
0: Really? Poor Mountain Dew. I used to love Crush.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but that's what our kids are are growing up on. I mean, even the breakfast, and I know Maggie Maggio is gonna like, cringe but I don't want my kid to have chocolate milk and juice and some type of a pastry at breakfast like where's the balance
0: there's no balance yeah I think uh, but I think your point though is that the quick calories. so you mentioned juice and chocolate milk those are two things that you don't register fullness really quickly especially as a kid you drink that well maybe I, sh- I shouldn't say especially as a kid especially as an adult we don't register that that those calories as much as we do actual food. I'd much rather my kid eat a Danish than a glass of chocolate milk and a juice. Like that's a lot of sugar and it's just pure liquid. Yeah. You don't have the, the ability to chew on it and savor it, right? So I think, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. Definitely. Absolutely. Well,
1: and, and you look at people like Cameron, for example, he likes the, the taste of LaCroix. Mm-hmm. But if Cameron whatever if a kid grows up drinking juice, pop, chocolate milk and then develops let's say diabetes I don't know and is suddenly asked to move to lacroix that's a that's a that's a switch, right I mean that's mm-hmm. not gonna go so well those taste buds get pre they they're conditioned to want crave and really you know lust for that that level of sweetness and I think that's problematic too with with sugar substitutes, I think that's what we're coming to find out is, is that they're attuning our taste buds to a direction we we don't necessarily want them to go um sugar sweetened beverages are just I just really see them as a major pitfall of they are in my opinion, to be consumed like alcohol sparingly on mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. special you know that is how you always talked about maybe protein as a garnish, like I think of juice, pop, that type of thing. As is a true moderation thing, it it just doesn't, in my opinion, have a place, um, or much of one. It it there is <laughs> just not a benefit. I know it's recognized as a as a fruit serving, but I have issues with that too, um, because <laughs> of all the things you said. I think number two for me would be poor diet quality. So everything. Do you know a patient told me this week it was called a minute dinner, and you buy it at the dollar store, and it's you add water and you microwave it for a minute, and then it's like it's a meat and a starch and a vegetable. Now, why is- You add water? Yes. Like there is just nothing to- I can't even imagine like what that is made of, that roast beef can be sitting on the shelf and water added and a minute later, it's an edible form of maybe protein. I don't know. Well,
0: it could be all they can afford. Yeah, totally. Right, yeah. Um, But that's not a high quality diet. If we're
1: relying on that for- improved health it's its probably not going to happen and i think eating patterns that have surfaced as the healthiest just over time we've talked about this dash mediterranean the emphasis is on fruits vegetables lean meats seafood specifically unsaturated fats whole grains beans legumes i don't really see where in intermittent fasting comes in um right. to, to either of those eating patterns or lifestyles um yeah Okay. So question three, I recently asked you if you thought obesity was a disease and this was <laughs> over text message. Mm-hmm. Um, and my curiosity came from the emerging market of the use of GLP-1 therapy in obese individuals. There's a lot there. We're not going to talk too much about it, but um, it's an in- typically an injectable um, hormone hormone for all intents and purposes that research is looking at to show improved weight status and the impact on um, weight status is the impact on endogenous GLP one. So to put it simply, those mm-hmm. in larger bodies may be hormonally predisposed to increased hunger and perpetuating a potential problem. So when you consider other hormonal problems, such as hyperthyroid or hypothyroid, menopause, diabetes, we treat those diseases and conditions with hormones and in some instances, maybe a bit of lifestyle or diet, it, but lifestyle diet is not the treatment for you know, hypothyroid, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so obesity seems to be treated differently in this way. There's a lot to unpack here, but I guess from a nutritional biochemistry perspective, um, supporting the statement, it's it's more difficult for those in larger bodies perhaps to participate in intermittent fasting and therefore should it be dissuaded. So I think mm-hmm. what the study is what research is showing, is that GLP-1 mm-hmm. is deficient in many people struggling with weight, right? Mm-hmm. And so if that is the hormone responsible for improving satiety and kind of telling the body, hey, turn turn the dial back, you're good. If there's a hormonal deficiency, that's really an that's an issue. But so is intermittent fasting in these hungrier people a good way to go?
0: Yeah, I I I like you're saying all this and I really don't know enough about the research, but I do, I, I feel like most people would have um, difficulties with, with intermittent fasting. But if what you're saying is true, obviously, yeah. If you're lacking a, a hormone that makes it more difficult for you to feel fullness, absolutely intermittent fasting would be more difficult and more restrictive. I know I would struggle with it, but if I lack that hormone, I'm sure I struggle, struggle with it even more. Uh, we're human beings. We are meant to keep our bodies fueled throughout the day. and I would also argue going back to your diet quality comment above, it's really hard to get all those servings, fruits, vegetables, whole grains that you need in just one meal a day or even two. Heck, it's even hard to get it in three, which is why I always recommend snacking to sort of supplement your meals. um you know, I just from what I've learned, we have these hunger signals that sort of go off every two to four hours. And that's what's normal. If you're not finding that, if you're not noticing that, like there might be something a little bit off. We are meant to eat every, again, two to four hours, maybe even five for some. Um, So I know just for to fast for eight to 14 hours. It's just not what our bodies are meant to do, of course, unless we're sleeping and our bodies have sort of been designed for that. We need that sleep uh, to to flourish and, and to really survive. Uh, so with regards to the hormone trials, you know, again, I would love to to dive more into that. I have trouble thinking though that a hormone would decrease obesity. I know you're not asking this question, but tell me if I'm wrong. I used to work with a lot of people who were very overweight and I hate to say the term overweight, but I'm just going to higher higher BMIs is what I guess I quote unquote should say. Uh, it was at a weight loss clinic. And whenever I took their 24 hour recall or even one week re- uh, diet recap, I found that they were often eating less um, or the same amount as, some, as someone in a smaller body. And yes, I do realize that sometimes they weren't 100% accurate, you know, honest or accurate. Because who can remember, all, honestly, what they ate in a 24-hour period? But generally speaking, I mean, and I would ask a lot of questions. Really, really trying to get as much detail as possible. Letting them know there's no judgment. You can be honest almost always i was floored with how little they were eating and it's generally because they were dieting right but they still weren't losing weight so i'm curious to hear how this research goes if it continues and if they do trials and all that so yeah
1: i've had very similar experiences i i agree with you it it doesn't make sense to me either yeah i don't think there's necessarily one size fits all approach here and and from clinic experience i would say that prolonged periods and you said 8 to 14 hours i would I think most intermittent fasting patterns are going yeah. to be north of sixteen hours of fasting.
0: Oh my gosh. Really? Okay.
1: Yeah, like like oh, an I didn't eight, eight, 16. Yeah. To, uh, I think that's the most common intermittent fasting kind of um, approach pattern is is kind of an eight hour eating window followed by a sixteen hour fast. Rinse <laughs> repeat. Okay. Okay. Uh yeah. And so all, I I hear a lot of people who just I would say prolonged periods without food can be associated with less healthful lifestyle practices. kind of that I didn't eat all day, so I get to eat all the things, and it doesn't matter what or how much. Like people and then people say, "Oh, that's intuitive eating. Um and this is this is a trap, and yet so common. And to your point, it's the exact opposite of intuitive eating. where I struggle, kind of like you, is where people tell me, I'm just not hungry. And I just can't understand that. <laughs> it doesn't like hunger mm. definitely comes to me. And hunger is the first recognized um change of levels of glu- glucose like we learn that as a diabetes educator. So if I were to have I would be curious if I were to have a continuous glucose monitor on those individuals, I would almost guess that there would be evidence of insulin resistance and a rise in glucose thanks to the liver again that releases stored glucose in the fasting state and so that is almost inhibiting the signal of hunger again mm-hmm. i there's i there has to be but when i think about just hormonally and this super fine just detail that we now have about people's blood sugars every minute of every day and what we see and then aligning it with their hunger patterns and their eating patterns when your glucose levels remain high it makes sense to me that Hunger wouldn't be signaled. It's the body saying mm-hmm. I've got enough, right? Like mm-hmm. that's problematic. We don't want the blood sugars to be high because there's all sorts of complications associated with, you know, with that. But it, it, it's probably an insulin issue. Kind of going back to hormones. So I guess, yeah, the liver is problematic, and that that's a type two diabetes thing, um, or even a pre diabetes thing. So I guess regardless of where the glucose is coming from. You know the insulin we have to remember is what carries that glucose into the cell for storage, and if it's not needed, if that energy isn't needed, um, you know it's it's put into storage, and and glycogen is repeat, is repleted. And I guess my takeaway here is the I I guess I try to be almost the opposite of intermittent fasting for these for this individual for these individuals. And again, I'm going to say that this is probably two thirds of the adult population. I would recommend to have something in the morning to elicit a endogenous insulin response. So if we're making our own insulin, we want it to be released. I always say if you're gonna have high blood sugars have it be because you ate a piece of chocolate cake or whatever not because you didn't eat mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. and we see that it, it, it's a thing um, So when people tell me that they can that they can that eating in the morning can make them hungrier throughout throughout the day I see that as a good thing. I don't know if you yeah. would agree.
0: Oh absolutely yes. When people tell me they're not hungry in the morning or at least in the first hour and a half, like I'm not hungry when I wake up. I'm not. But after the first hour, I'm definitely hungry. Uh, And if I don't get hungry, like I feel like there might be something wrong. Like your body should be, you should be noticing hunger signals for sure. Yes, it's a good thing.
1: Well, I guess if you're not, consider trying a small something to Mm -hmm. see if you can develop that and see if it impacts your your health related goals and outcomes like and that's very person dependent and i'm not talking weight here i'm talking about how do you feel how are you sleeping what's your energy level like those types of things in terms of health uh cuz like you said i think our bodies are meant to fuel us through the day um i'm sorry our yeah our, our nutrition is meant to fuel us through the day and just to add to i think we see this with if you abstain from food, whether from lack of hunger or it is because of intermittent fasting that's driving it, there tends to be this reward effect, deprivation effect that can kind of creep in in the evening. So it, as your eating window we closing or bedtime's approaching, it's kind of like this rum, 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 and get all mm-hmm. the food. And mm-hmm. those typically aren't probably the best choices.
0: Yeah, uh, I feel like I was gonna say something else and I forgot. I don't remember. Isn't it so sad that we get angry when eating makes us hungry? We are so ingrained by this idea that hung- being hungry is bad. Like, mm-hmm. Being hungry means you have to eat something. You shouldn't eat something because you need to lose weight. It's just so sad that our we as a society prefer not being hungry to being hungry. And I remember this so clearly when I had an eating disorder. I would, I was just so excited when I wasn't hungry. And that was part of my recovery, actually, was to start getting excited about hunger. And that was something that really helped me was when I sort of changed my view of hunger. And instead of getting angry at my hunger, being elated about my hunger and being like, you know what? This is my body telling me I need to eat something. I'm going to nourish my body. And that really, really helped me just changing my view on that, on that idea of hunger. Also, I want to say, I think some people, and not all, but I think many people fall in the category of they're not feeling hunger because they're not in tuned with their body's hunger signals. Their body actually is giving them hunger signals. They're just not attuned to them. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a huge part of our, of what, I shouldn't say huge. I think many of us, because we have been dieting for so long, have lost touch with what our our body's hunger signals. So we think we're not hungry, but actually our body is is actually begging for food. Two thoughts. Okay. One is okay. kind of
1: silly. Like, So say your eating window is 12 to 8, 12 p.m. to 8. And let's say it's 11 o'clock and you are hungry and you are just like chomping at the bit like, oh my gosh, is it (laughs) noon yet? Like, what's the point? I know. It's so dumb. It's an hour. And okay, there's... uh, I'm probably going to forget the next... Then, so... We I I was when I was preparing for this episode, I was looking at like, you know, how much glycogen is stored in the body. Like, so you don't you fast for a period of time, right? So then your body goes to using glycogen, stored glucose in, in your liver, your muscle. So it's gonna use that, right? Because you're in a fasted state and you're not just gonna drop on the floor, probably. So your body's gonna find that glucose from somewhere. There is your liver and muscle is not gonna be depleted of of glycogen after right. 16 hours. So what's right. the point?
0: Yeah, people are like, oh, "I'm going to start burning fat." No, you're not. <laughs> Sorry. It's not. It's not
1: going to happen. Well, and I don't I didn't go enough far enough. I but I would be curious and maybe a listener can point us in, in to some credible research. But at what point would your glycogen stores and it wasn't a consistent answer online. I there was just enough that I I didn't feel comfortable like saying a number definitively mm-hmm. on the show but it, it, it was it ranged a lot there is just no way that yeah fasting well, for even 24 hours would get you to that point
0: they even when I did my exercise science class for in graduate school or exercise nutrition I feel like it was like halfway into the marathon when you quit quote-unquote bottom out and your glycogen sores are gone halfway into a marathon so now I realize that halfway into a marathon might be like two hours, but that's when you're running. I don't know. I just right, right, <laughs> yeah. And you're generally drinking something with the Gatorade that's you know replenishing your glucose, but yet you still yeah. Anyway, I don't or know.
1: goo or okay. So one more. Goo. Mm-hmm. I remember in grad school, everybody was assigned like a diet. And we exhaustively researched it, and we came up with pros and cons. And I was assigned the hunter gatherer paleo, if you will. Mm-hmm. I know. Nutritionally, what paleo consists of, but eating pattern wise to me hunter gatherer type stuff is see it eat it like you're opportunistic with your food, right, because you may not get more food it's It's a yeah. bit of a different approach, so it I saw some things online that said that hunter either the paleo approach it marries with intermittent fasting, and that didn't that didn't jive with my understanding of paleo. Do you have yeah. any? No,
0: I, I can, I can understand that maybe it it takes them a longer time to get their food. They might go hours on end without food because someone's out hunting and gathering their food. But now I I just don't know enough about it. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Going off script again. All
1: right, right. Our next question. So adoptive families are classically studied when determining the relative impact of genetics versus environment. Denmark keeps very, like Denmark is the country, keeps very detailed records on both sets of parents in adoptive studies. And in a study of 540 540 Danish adoptions, there was found to be no relationship between the weight of the adoptive parents and the adoptees. The weight of the parents raising the child, in other words, made no difference to the eventual weight of the adopted child. The environment was largely irrelevant. Yet, comparing the adoptees to their biological parents, there was a very strong, consistent correlation between weights. And the Obesity Code, this book that I'm reading, used a study of twins to then determine that about 70% of our weight is genetic and 30% is factors under our own control. And we we kind of touched on this in a recent topic, what you and I thought of this. So this was an interesting mm-hmm. follow-up. How does this sit with you?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would definitely agree. I don't know. I, I remember seeing this 2020 episode. I feel like it was years ago. And it was, maybe it was looking at this exact same study or somewhere in, in Denmark, who knows, but they, they looked at pairs of twins who grew up separated and came together. And I just still have this vision of these men. Uh, these two twins, they were, they were men. They're probably like in their 40s, 50s. I don't even know, but I can still see them. <laughs> anyway, they came together and they were almost completely identical, weights, height, all that. But they had, been, they had both lived in two completely different environments, different states, different, you know, parents raising them, different socioeconomic status, all that. So I absolutely agree with that. Um, and I just think that that goes to show you that diets don't work. Your body will do its thing no matter what. And the more we try to push our body to do something else that you want it to, it's just like with people. The more you try to change someone, the more they're going to backlash, right? The more they're going to ignore you. And I need to remind this to my, myself of this all the time. <laughs> but it's the same thing with your body. The The more you try to make your body be something it's not, uh, the more difficult it's, your life is going to be, which is why body acceptance is such a huge and important thing to, to achieve. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I
1: th- thought I knew the answer and I see your response. But for our listeners, mm-hmm. do you view intermittent fasting as a diet?
0: I do. It's Mm -hmm. anything that involves deprivation and uses external instead of internal cues to determine what and when to eat is a diet. Yes, I do. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, that being said, well, we'll get into it in another question, actually. Go ahead. Okay.
1: So question five, calorie intake and calorie expenditure are dependent variables. In other words, decreasing your intake triggers a decrease in your calorie expenditure. And this is news to a lot of people. Do you feel Mm -hmm. that this impacts any known efficacy of intermittent
0: fasting? Sure. It, it, I, would, I would assume so. So if you're taking in less calories, therefore your body's going to burn less calories. But again, this this is assuming that we're saying intermittent fasting is good for weight loss. I know that there's some research out there. I have not seen any real good research or with large you know study groups that might show that it's beneficial for other things. But as far as the efficacy for it as an approach to weight loss, I do, yes, think that this says a lot if there are dependent variables. It's very similar to exercise. Your body compensates for calories burned when you exercise more by reducing calories burned throughout the day, which actually goes against a lot of what we, used, what we, used, we learned, what I used to tell people. So your body revs up calories burned when you exercise less Essentially, to achieve some sort of like homeostasis and to keep your body at a weight that it's comfortable. Uh, this is not to say that exercise isn't helpful, uh, but without also eating a balanced diet and listening to our bodies, exercise alone won't make you healthier or thinner. Okay. Uh, and I, and I, I know that this is not really, I'm kind of taking an exercise approach right now. I'm not necessarily answering your question, but I do want to point out that I'm going to put a couple links in our show notes for an article on that idea that exercise alone does not actually help you uh, reduce or increase energy expenditure throughout the day because people might be questioning that. So I am going to put a link to some studies in our show notes and a podcast episode that I just listened to a couple days ago. So yeah. Awesome. What do you think?
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think what makes intermittent fasting attractive for people is the lack of traditional diet rules around counting, measuring, eliminating. Uh, But I haven't run across any research to show that energy intake of those following an intermittent fasting kind of eating pattern, um, calories, I should say, um, energy calories, is different as compared to somebody following a traditional eating pattern of intuitive eating or otherwise unrestricted eating. I I would be interested Mm -hmm. in knowing that.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, me too.
1: I yeah, I don't know. Um, I think I think what makes it muddy the research is that there's different so many different types of intermittent fasting uh, that you, you can't just say that and it means the same thing to to everybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. all right.
1: Is there a time, place or a person you could see intermittent fasting working well for, or an instance where you would support it as a haze aligned intuitive eating dietitian?
0: Yeah, I definitely think that there is an instance where I can see it being intuitive eating and hazelined, and that's when you're not doing it for weight loss. But most importantly, when it's just the way that you naturally eat. I have met plenty of people who, before this became a huge thing, intermittent fasting—that's just how they ate. Now, do I agree with it? No. Would I? Would I still recommend that they don't eat like that? Absolutely. But I, I know quite a few people who've just always done this. They don't eat. They don't eat until three o'clock, and not because they're doing intermittent fasting. That's just the way they've always done it. And so to them, that's how they intuitively eat. And, you know, who am I to say that's wrong? If that's what works for them, that's what works for their schedule, you know, more power to them. Uh, but I think it's different when you're doing it for an end result of weight loss and you're doing it because it's, quote unquote, intermittent fasting and you're looking at the clock and you're waiting until three o'clock and that is different. But, you know, for those of, and I know there are many out there who've always done it this way. I mean, what if that's the way they intuitively eat, then- so be it. There's no deprivation involved. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I would, I would echo you. I, I think it depends on the person. And I recently shared that I kind of started eating more intuitively for me, I would say, <laughs> and how that translated in my life is I got to have my coffee in the morning and I am a happier person with a little bit of junk in it. So that I I just life wise, I would then eat a bit more of a brunch. So I would always force the issue of breakfast in the morning, like immediately because my schedule demanded that. And I just found that that wasn't satisfying to me. I wasn't hungry at that time. We always say you enjoy your food more when you're, you know, biologically ready for it. You're hungry. Right. And so I just took the reins on that. And I said, all right, I'm packing breakfast to go. And I'm going to eat that at at work. Like when I'm hungry. And so that really then pushed back my lunch because I was eating later. And then I felt better because I exercise after work. So for me, having that like brunch followed by like linner uh, mm-hmm. resulted in a smaller dinner because like you said earlier on the show, when after you exercise and the higher intensity it is, which tends to be what I go for, it actually... Curbs appetite because your body is is just responding right, and then it's later, several hours later, that there's that uptick and you notice the hunger then. So I I I resisted that for a long time because I cook dinner, I have this blog, like I want to enjoy it, but I was like, you know what? I'm also that person who really enjoys leftovers, and I'm still cooking for my family. And so rather than looking at that at that as a negative, I was like, no, this is good. I'm going to eat with my family. Something, and my portion varies a lot. Um, so I just kind of went on a tangent there. But then what I found is that after dinner, in the evening hours, rather than demonizing snacking at that time, that's the time of day that I am hungry and I give myself permission to eat intuitively at that time. And sometimes it's probably another meal's worth of I, I don't I'm just making something up. But it's not necessarily like, a portion of something. It may be two portions of two different, or a portion of two different things. Because I'm I'm that hungry, um, and I do try and eat at that time some type of protein. Because I know that if I don't, I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and I'm going to be hungry. So <laughs> I don't know. I just I think I've done a lot better job listening to my hunger cues. And for me, my workout has a strong impact on when that's going to be. And rather than resist it, I've really leaned into it. So that all that to say. I probably do follow somewhat of an intuitive eating pattern very loosely and by no with no intention involved.
0: Wait, you mean intermittent fasting pattern? What did I say? Intuitive eating. It's all right. Intermittent fasting. Thank you.
1: Yes. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly my point. Like there are some people, it just works. As long as you're again still listening to your body and not making a choice to eat based on the clock, right? That is the key. You need to eat based on what your body is telling you. Uh, and that's not I'm not saying every single time you eat and if you don't do it every time you're a failure. But generally speaking, that's what you want to do.
1: Yeah. I love it
0: all right. Mom win, favorite new product or recipe, Gina. That was good. yeah, well, I found this. This was probably on like a Facebook ad that I saw, and it, it it's a swing uh, that kind of encapsulates your your child. It kind of holds them into a snug position and kind of I was looking for something to kind of help Paige relax a little bit. She loves to swing and, Our swing set, of course, is covered in snow or ice at all times At these days in January. So I thought, why don't we get a swing for the basement while they're watching TV? They can swing or whatever. So I found this thing. And of course, I paid $65 for it on the website. Then I found it on Amazon. Why didn't I look for it on Amazon first? I do not know. But I'll put the link in the show notes. You can lay on your belly, on your back. You can sit in it like a little... um, chrysalis i guess and be all like, like a little cocoon it's it's very cute and fun and it looks nice it doesn't i got a it, it color purple so they don't they don't look hideous but it's in our basement you can hang it in your in someone's bedroom or i don't know but i'll put the link in our show notes but it's been quite the hit although they do kind of fight over it a few you know every once in a while which is when we take it off the hook <laughs> so yeah. they've learned not to do that
1: it looks really fun yeah check out about gina's you? instagram for more <laughs> yeah. oh yeah i did put some
0: some uh yeah. videos in there <laughs> it was
1: cute uh okay so mine is also not a food related or nutrition related yeah. anything but it's a long black sheer beach cover-up tie skirt that Ooh. has like the long slit up the up the thigh oh, yeah. i was just i'm bora bora shopping and i found it and i I really, 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 really like it. I don't know. I think a lot of swim cover-ups are just kind of frumpy. This is like, yeah, Tahitian beach, like sexy. I'm pretty excited about it.
0: Let me check it out. Oh, wow. It looks just like that on
1: me, Gina, okay? Just envision (laughs) it just like that. Yes,
0: (laughs) yes. Oh my gosh, annoying. (laughs) What I liked about it too
1: is like, you're not tall either.
0: I was concerned-
1: I think I bought a large or an extra large. I was concerned it was going to be too long on me. And it really wasn't.
0: Okay. So it's yeah, a little long, long, but legs. I'm not
1: going to like, it's not going to be dragging on the ground behind me. It's not going to be like, you know, a ball
0: gown. Like that's
1: the, sometimes those longer things on short, short folks, it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. Oh, because they had different sizes. Yeah. Yep. Some, okay. Did you get the small to medium? No, probably. Um, no. Well, is it, do you tie it? I mean, it looks like yes. you can untie. And you can make it as looser or tight around the waist. Yeah, I think
1: it depends if you want it to kind of go all the way around you with like a slit or if you want some like hip thigh thing showing, like if you want a gap.
0: I might have to add that to my cart.
1: Yeah. All right. You're welcome. All right. Read a review. We've got a review from EMD35. Fantastic addition to my podcast subscriptions. I'm so glad I discovered this podcast. Thank you so much. That's awesome.
0: Yes, thank you. All right, so coming up on January 30th, in other words, my birthday, we will be dishing out another self-care episode, specifically is weight loss self-care. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram and check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. And if you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right, everyone, until next time, be well. And Nicole, talk to you soon. Take care, Gina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.